You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. There's a theme that is introduced in the previous chapter that then frames all of chapter 4, which we're looking at today. What we're told in the previous chapter in verse 18 is this. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. There are two explanations for this point. One is that like all creatures in this world, we are born, we live, and then we die. It doesn't really matter where you find yourself on the spectrum of intelligent life or where you find yourself in sort of, you know, the the food chain or whatever. There is nothing that you can do to avoid the reality that you, like every other living creature in this world, you're gonna die from dust to dust. Now, as if that isn't already hard to digest, the other explanation is even more difficult. You ready? The other explanation is this, that we are not only like animals in our mortality, but we are also often very similar to animals in our morality, in our decision-making, in our behaviors, and in our interactions with others. As one poet described this passage here, what we see is man's inhumanity towards man. Life under the sun, according to the preacher of Ecclesiastes, is often an inhumane existence, where in the course of our pursuits, 
We often forfeit our humanity and strip others of theirs, becoming less and less like the humans that we were designed to be and more and more like the animals that we were called to have dominion over. The lines begin to blur. Herman Melville, the author of the famous story about Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. It's the truest book out there, he said. And it's not hard to see how Ecclesiastes 4 specifically shaped him as a writer, and specifically his famous story about the wild Captain Ahab. Way too long of a story to summarize, so suffice it to say this. Ahab, the captain, was a hell-bent ship captain who was gripped by the need for revenge, seeking to capture and kill a whale that had cost him his leg years before. And as the story progresses, you begin to see the way that Ahab is losing his humanity on the seas, drifting further and further away from what makes him human, his thinking, his interactions, his decision, his decisions, his impulsiveness. And the irony that we see in this story is that the closer he gets to capturing this animal, the closer he gets to obtaining and achieving what he's been striving after, the more like the animal that Ahab becomes. So the question that's really setting over the whole story is this, who's the beast? Who's the wild animal? Is it the whale who's just like defending himself? Or is it Ahab? Melville described it as a wild madness that would overcome him, causing him to put himself and his crew in unnecessary danger, eventually killing everyone but one sole survivor. And the question is, for what? What was the purpose? What was it all for? The preacher would say, vanity, man. Futility, hevel, chasing after wind. So what I want to do this morning is explore four themes that we see the preacher highlighting in this chapter, oppression, rivalry, isolation, stubbornness. But what I want to do is I want to use contemporary language that we often use today in order to highlight the sort of less than human ways that we are often settling for. But then I want to conclude with the hope that we have in Jesus to overcome that pattern. But here's where I want to begin. Where I want to begin this morning is with this, a dog-eat-dog world. Ever heard this phrase? We live in a dog-eat-dog world. Look at me again in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So, in a dog-eat-dog world, people will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to be successful. And the term that the Bible uses here, and often throughout the scriptures, is the word oppression, which means unjust gain. Now, the preacher describes this pattern of human gain as people striving for success at the expense of others. It's one thing to win, it's another thing to win at other people's expenses. Ruthless competition. A world of winners and losers. Upward mobility on the backs of other people that fight to get ahead, to gain at someone else's expense. Those who are stronger, whether it's physically or economically or politically, exerting their strength over the vulnerable in order to get what they want. 
Now let's make this personal, because it's easy to be like, yeah, oppressive world out there. Let's think about the ways that we can often see this instinct developing in us, even from a very early age. Babies cry when someone else gets attention. A toddler learns that horrible word, mine, like little capitalists in training in our homes. A child doesn't care one bit about a toy until what? Another child begins to play with it. And then all of a sudden, life is going to crumble and fall apart until I have it out of your hands and back into my hands. As children, we learn to scream and pout and manipulate and even fight and bite to get what we want. We take, we hoard, we withhold, and we claw our way through much of life. And then... We just find more socially acceptable ways to do this as we get older so we don't get arrested and kicked out of society. We learn how to throw other coworkers under the bus. We withhold important information that will benefit us so that we can get ahead. We use the accomplishments of others, someone else, to get the recognition. If, the, if in the team something goes bad, it's their fault. If in the team something goes good, it was me. Now this is obviously, obviously an issue of sin and selfishness that is in every human heart, one that we all have to humbly acknowledge and then bring to God for his grace and his healing. But what the preacher recognizes is that this isn't just an individual heart problem, but something we also see on a much broader scale, in systems and in structures of power. What we're told here is literally power leans on the side of the oppressors and then it fills the world with untold agony. There are systems that are set up to benefit those who oppress and to keep that cycle going. You can take that out of our kids' school books, by the way, but you can't take it out of scriptures. There have been different ways to describe this throughout history. The insiders, the outsiders, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, on and on and on. But despite different government systems that come and go, different economic structures that have existed over the last 2,500 years, what seems to be a constant throughout human history is the division between those who have and those who don't have and that fierce competition between them. The ongoing conflict based on the belief that the goal of life is to wind up on top, to win. We are winners. Now, it's important to mention this, that the point here of Ecclesiastes 4 is not a call to action. We are sort of armchair activists often, and we're like, okay, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to turn this around? The writer of Ecclesiastes is not calling to action. Now the scriptures would, but the writer of Ecclesiastes is not here. There's a season for everything, including God's justice that is to come. At this moment, right now, what the preacher is asking you to do is to simply get honest about life under the sun, which is undeniably, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, I think we all can believe on this, or believe this, we are all living in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It doesn't matter how equitable we claim to be. It doesn't matter how progressive our nation claims to be. For many that live today, even today, it would have been better to never have been born. 
it gets worse. Let's look secondly at the rat race. Look at me in verse 4. Then, so he's observing all these facets of society, by the way. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This all is vanity and striving after wind. There's that phrase again. Striving after wind. When the preacher looks at the world with honest eyes, life under the sun, what he observes is one big mad dash to the end. A way of life where people compete aggressively with each other in order to be more successful than their neighbor, pursuing goals in this sort of repetitive, endless way over and over again like a rat race. Now that phrase, rat race, comes from this idea of being in a lab, you got these lab rats in this staged maze and they're all competing to get to one single piece of cheese at the end. Each day, a new race. Same maze, every single day, one piece of cheese. No time to rest, no time to enjoy life, just a tireless impulse to get out there and to seize the prize and do it all over again tomorrow, and do it all over again the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, until they finally put your body in the ground. Or what do we say? I'll rest when I die. Sounds like a joyful existence. Where does this come from? Why do we, honestly, why do we yield to this inhumane pressure to go, 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 achieve, 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 win, 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 promote, promote, promote. Where does this come from? Well, the preacher tells us that what he observes is, the, is that it comes from the sin of envy. Envy is often driving us. Envy is sort of twofold. Envy looks within our own life and says something significant is lacking and then looks out and says, you've got what I need. There's an old uh, Irish epic tale about this powerful king and queen. They're very rich, both of them. One day they decide, let's compare our riches. And so they lay out all the riches and observe that they are completely equal in their wealth with one exception. The king, in years past, had obtained this bull, a stolen bull in battle. And this one bull became a very contentious point. When the queen saw that he had something that she did not, it says this, it was as if she didn't even have a single penny. You know that feeling? I don't have anything in my life until I have this. How easy it is to forget all of the blessings that we do have in our striving to have that one thing. And envy turned into an epic bloody battle, by the way. The Bible describes Christian maturity as being able to weep with those who weep and celebrate and rejoice with those who rejoice. We grieve when our brothers and sisters suffer in our grieving. We celebrate when our brothers and sisters are succeeding in some way. Our emotions aren't just attached to our own ebbs and flows. Our emotions are actually attached, attached to our brothers and sisters. We're connected through Jesus Christ. My emotions are tethered to your experience, and that's a good thing. But if we're to be honest, 
Our most natural tendency is to do the very opposite, isn't it? Our most natural tendency is that we experience a little thrill when someone else experiences misfortune. You're like, hmm, <laughs> that's too bad. Or the other way, when we experience that sense of unpleasantness when someone else succeeds. Oh, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> Gore Vidal once said that whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Let's be, can we be honest for a second? Jealousy. We're like, oh. social media is great for this, by the way. Great for this. And so the question is, if envy often drives us, then what drives our envy? Where does the envy come from? Well, often it is driven by what's been called a scarcity mindset. In other words, the belief that there's only so many resources and relationships and recognition to go around, that there's only so much cheese at the end of the lab maze, so if someone else succeeds, I'm jealous, I'm threatened because I lost. If you gain, that means I lost. If you have, I don't have. Scarcity. Stephen Covey put it this way, people with this mentality, and let's be honest, maybe this is us, People with this mentality have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit, power and profit. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. And the hard news is that scarcity mindset is not just an out there problem, it's an in the church problem as well. Jealousy plagues our experience as well. Life under the sun, the preacher observes, is a tiresome rat race. Shall we keep going? The third thing we see is the lone wolf. The lone wolf. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Again, just observing things in this world. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity, hevel, in an unhappy business. So the point is really clear here. The cost of ambition is loneliness. You can have ambition or you can have meaningful relationships, but the honest truth is you cannot have both. You will sacrifice one or the other for one of these things. And the cost of being ambitious, a word that we often commend in our culture, it's going to cost you meaningful relationships till one day you may stand eerily alone. The preacher observes this driven individual who spends his or her time and energy toiling, working to be the best, seeking the next promotion, putting in the extra hours to get ahead, they're working overtime, they're working late nights, they're burning the candles at both ends, they got their computer with them on vacation, but they're slowly isolating themselves. Perhaps this was the person who told themselves, this isn't for me, this is for my family. Or maybe this was the single individual and said, no, this is for my future family. 
This is totally selfless. I'm, I'm working for other people. I'm going to do what's necessary to give these people the life that I always wanted. So one sacrifice weekend made it easier to sacrifice another weekend. A couple extra hours of overtime led to five, which led to 10, which led to 20. You don't understand it's time and a half. And if I cross this threshold, it's double time. You don't understand how this is helping me in my lifetime and helping us and our family and helping us reach our goals and on and on and on. And when they do finally succeed, which is, by the way, maybe one of the worst things that can happen in our life is success. When they do finally succeed, they reach all of their professional and financial goals. They're literally able to say, I made it. I made it. There's nowhere more to climb. I'm at the top. They look around at their moment to enjoy the fruit of all their labors with someone and what they realize is now it's too late and they are alone. Maybe it was the individual that literally just pushed everyone out of their life. Maybe it was the individual that just never created margin for relationships in their life because they were married to their success. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, despite his riches and his success, what does he do? He sits alone in a cold, dark room, haunted by the ghosts of friends that he once had, and dreaming and fantasizing of days when he was broke, happy, and loved. This person, here's the evil. This person never stops to ask the question, what's the point? Why am I doing this? What's this all for? They never pause to ask the question that Jesus asks in Matthew chapter 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What does it matter if we forfeit what actually makes us human? Can we look at one more thing? The pig-headed person. The pig-headed person. Look at me in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. This one hits home. I'm not old, but I am advanced in foolishness. One of the best illustrations on this point comes from a classic piece of literature. I actually found it in one of the old closets here. Uh, Animal Farm. Maybe you had to read it in high school. And the story about Animal Farm is that there are these group of farm animals that try to take over. When the farmer turns out the lights, all the animals gather for a meeting, and this boar named Old Major gathers the animals and urges them to sort of like unionize and rebel against the farmer so that they can take over the farm. But after Old Major suddenly dies, a group of pigs take charge and they start ordering people around. And as they start taking charge, they start imposing these very strict and, uh, rules with harsh consequences. And after a series of events, one pig named Napoleon takes sole charge of the group. And the first order of business when he's in charge, Napoleon, is that he orders no more meetings to hear from the other animals. We don't want to hear from any more animals anymore. In fact, if anyone opposes Napoleon's leadership, they are sentenced to death. The, the, the phrase that goes around the farm is Napoleon the pig is always right. 
Honest question, has that ever been said about you? No, they're always right. They always have to be right. The Bible tells us that the epitome of foolishness is not being able to take advice. Unwilling to be contradicted and challenged. Proverbs 18, verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Social media is good for this, too, by the way. I don't want to hear it, but hear me. They're always right. Those who oppose them and disagree with them, ooh, you better watch out. They shut out voices that challenge them and their way of thinking and their decision making. And then the more they persist that they are right, the more they punish people that disagree. Maybe they lash out aggressively. Maybe it's more passive. I just like cut you out of my life and ghost you. But the Bible seems clear that you will never rise above foolishness until you give people permission to contradict you without fear of being punished or pushed out. Who challenge you in areas that you don't want to be challenged in. So honest question, do you have someone in your community that has permission to call you out? That you've explicitly given permission not just, oh yeah, I assume that if they ever see something, they'll say something. No, you have told them boldly in the face, I need you to point things out that I will miss. Do you have friends that you know that can challenge, and I know this is like a cardinal sin here, that can challenge your parenting. That can challenge your spending. Oh, Lord. That can call you out when you're expressing, and expressing ambition and, and in your motivations behind career planning and in your wild political views. Do you have someone that can pull you aside and say, yeah, let's, let's rethink that. Now, the challenge of preaching a passage like this is that there is no mention of God. Have you noticed that? It's a pretty bleak message so far because it's a bleak chapter. No explicit mention of God. And that's intentional because the preacher is highlighting that life under the sun, when it's lived separated from God's grace, separated from the gift of community, out of alignment with what his vision in scripture is for our human flourishing, it's always going to be competitive. It's always going to be lonely, and it will never improve on its own. That outlook is extremely bleak. But then there is a very fine thread of grace woven into this passage. Because within all of these observations about inhumane living conditions, he repeats a word several times. In fact, it's one of the words that kind of frames the narrative of Ecclesiastes, and it's the word better. Better, better, better. The preacher is giving us practical advice so that we can live a better life. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So he's saying, envision a, a flourishing life here. With one hand, work hard, be responsible, put in your time and effort. But with the other hand, take up quiet and rest and joy and holy pleasure. Pause to enjoy the life that God has given you, for goodness sake. Like the fourth command, six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall Sabbath. This is the pattern. This is the difference between a person who is endlessly stuck in the rat race 
and the better life, being content and enjoying the reward of honest work, the good kind of tithe. The more you enjoy life, the more you rest from your work, the more you're quiet and you're content, the more you're going to embrace your humanity and you're going to help other people embrace their humanity as well. It's better. Look at me in verse 9. Two are better than one. That's very practical. What's he saying? That when we're joined with others, whether it's through fellowship or friendship or family or with a spouse, life simply becomes better. This is the way we were made. This is the way we were created. We were designed as social beings, and therefore, we are better together. Reality, I am better because of the people in my life. I can say that confidently. I'm a better person today because of the people that God has brought into my life. But notice something. Better's good. A little play on words here. It's not best. Even better, a better life can't lift us above the futility. Rest, companionship, these are gifts of God's grace. It's what you would call common grace. Anyone, regardless of their faith, has been offered by God the gift of rest and companionship. But they're simply incapable of truly changing our lives. And the truth is, rest will be disrupted and relationships will suffer and fade. They can't save us. They're good. They're blessings. They won't save So what we require to live truly human, to flourish in the way that we were designed to so that we can break free from the broken patterns that are found under the sun is that we need rescue. And here's the Christian message. We need rescue from beyond the sun. We need a rescue that we cannot do for ourselves. We need that envy and that rivalry and that selfishness that is embedded deep into our hearts to be removed and replaced with love. We need to be made right with the God that we have misrepresented in all of our broken patterns of life. We need freedom and power over that aggressive impulse to isolate ourselves. In short, friends, we need to be made completely new. And while the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing some important work here, important groundbreaking work, What he's doing is he's showing us what's wrong with this world, and we need that news. But the Apostle Paul in the New Testament shows us how we can actually be made right. And what we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 is this, for the love of Christ controls us. Pause. Imagine a life controlled completely by love, no longer by envy and keeping up with the Joneses, but controlled by love love because we've concluded this that one has died for all who's he speaking about Jesus who's he speaking about Jesus therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might live those who live might no longer may no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised therefore he concludes if anyone is in Christ He or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the kind of better we need. On the cross, we're told that Jesus, the good shepherd, became the sacrificial lamb. Let me say it this way. He stepped into the place of the animal. 
He became the the lamb led to the slaughter so that we could then be restored to our place as the crown of God's creation so that we could live as a new humanity. So that we could break free from the old, anxious ways of living and live into the unhurried, joyful way of God's kingdom. And the way we're told here that we can be made new, that we can rise above those sort of animalistic impulses is by trusting in Jesus. And one of the first steps, and this is why Ecclesiastes is so important for us, one of the first steps in this trust is that we need to learn to distrust ourselves and the way of the world. The preacher is weaning you off of you and showing you and exhausting all of these resources found within your own life and within this world that it's empty and it will not save. You just simply can't do it, but Jesus can. I want to conclude with an illustration that I think we're all familiar with, The Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, if you're not familiar with the story, is about a prince named Adam, which feels strangely biblical because the word Adam in Genesis simply means human. But the beast is cursed and banished to live in isolation. The only hope for his future and transformation and all of his household, by the way, for the spell to be broken is for someone to truly love him. Despite his terror, despite his ability to drive people away, the hope of love comes to him in a woman named Belle, someone he sadly mistreats all throughout the story, by the way. And at the very end, as the beast is dying, it requires death. This is also feeling strangely biblical right now. As the last rose petal is falling, despite his beast-like ways of treating Belle, Belle looks upon him and with tears she whispers that she loves him. And in that moment, the spell is lifted and he's changed into a human again. And with his transformation, this is beautiful, with his transformation, his entire castle becomes beautiful again. It's filled with life. All the people that had become objects because they were treated like objects turned into humans again. It was a wave of rehumanization. And if I may be this sacrilegious, <laughs> this is a picture of how Jesus loves us. And how Jesus' love not only changes our own individual lives, we have to go so much further than that, friend. Not only the way that Jesus changes our own individual life, but he changes our relationships, he changes our families, our community, our church, and Lord willing, our city. Beauty and the Beast, if I may, is an inspiring vision for our church. Reality, I want to be the kind of place where people can be human. That sounds so strangely obvious, but I think if we look around in this world, it's not. And we can't assume it. Reality, I want to be the kind of place where people are treated like humans. Not like objects, not like animals. Somewhere they can step in and feel free from the race and the contentious nature of this world and the dog-eat-dog fight and breathe and love and be loved. Despite all the ways that they've been dehumanized, that they can experience rehumanization through the gospel of Jesus Christ and his transforming love for us. May it be among us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.